All right, welcome in episode 144 of the Hot Grits Podcast. I'm Travis Jadon. We're going to get going today. Got a kind of a different episode for you. Um, half live from Coach's Corner on Tuesday afternoon after the Georgia Southern game. And then half of it, uh, the first part and the and the last part, I'll pre-record um, as I'm doing now uh, on Tuesday morning. So before we get going, though, Coach's Corner, you guys know them, you love them. The number one sports bar in Savannah and our title sponsor here on HGP, www.coaches.net, 3016 East Victory Drive. Or if you want to call ahead, it's 912-352-2933. The best way to stay up to date with what's going on over at Coach's Corner is to follow them on Facebook. Go like their page on Facebook, and there you can check out the other Coach's Corner Sports Network shows as well. Rubbin' and Grubbin' with Brandon Bain, the NASCAR guy, on Wednesday nights, live on the Coach's Corner Facebook page and archived on Rubbin' and Grubbin's YouTube page. Carl Damasi every Saturday morning talking local sports. Same thing right there live on Saturday mornings, Coach's Corner Facebook, but then also archived on Carl's YouTube page. That's the Carl Damasi Sports Report on YouTube. Check out Coach's Corner this bowl season. I'm up there for the Georgia Southern game. Hopefully when we flash to the future, that's a Georgia Southern win. Uh, check them out. Tell them the Hawkers podcast sent you, and they will hook it up up there at Coach's Corner. All right, let's get after it for a 144th time, Hawkers podcast. Ain't nobody goes this your boy Campbell. I mean, I've always kind of believed in aliens. I don't know if I believe in flying saucers. Ain't nobody gonna rip like you might as well just walk up to keep it while he's on his lunch break, you know, crank his heat or something. Yeah, right baby, right? We'll see that. We're almost uh, three minutes into our sports podcast and yet to bring up not one sport. Roll out, all right, welcome in episode 144. I'm Travis Chadon. Uh Let's not waste any time today. Here's the rundown. We're going to talk Georgia, Ohio State, preview the Peach Bowl, the college football playoff semifinal in Atlanta this weekend, uh, New Year's Eve night, 8 p.m. kickoff. We're going to preview that to start. Then we're going to flash you guys to my live reaction of the Georgia Southern game. So I'm recording this Tuesday morning and Georgia Southern plays later this afternoon. I'm going to head up to Coach's Corner, watch that game up there, and then react to it live on the Coach's Corner Facebook page and the Hot Grits Podcast Facebook page. So I'll clip that in for the audio listeners, and then we'll flash back to pre-record. We'll talk Falcons, some local sports, and then an HGP Celebrity Death of the Week, as always. But first, I mean, I, I don't think... There's anything bigger this week than Georgia, Ohio State. Georgia, Ohio State, the wait is almost over, folks. 13-0 dogs versus 11-1 Buckeyes. Georgia minus 6.5 point favorite as I record this on Tuesday. Um, all right, so for me, big picture, like the closer this game gets, I realize what's at stake more. And it, like by that I mean, I guess big picture for Georgia this is a chance for them to do what is rarely done in college football and what's never been done in the college football playoff era, um, which I think that, yeah, this is the ninth season of the college football playoffs. We've never had a back-to-back champ. That's what George is trying to do. But, you know, even more than that, I would think there's a sense of urgency here because when you start to look back, because that was surprising to me. Like It feels like Clemson won back-to-back, or it feels like Alabama surely would have won a back-to-back somewhere in there. Um, but that's not the case. You'd have to go back to the BCS and to Alabama um, you know, in the 2010s. Was it 2011, 2012, 2013? That, that range? For the last back-to-back college football national champ. And when when you think about it that way, take out Alabama, this never happens. Like, this does not happen in the modern era of college football. Now, a lot of teams have won one, and that's what Georgia has right now. Like, they, they're, in a, they're in a group that includes 2010 Auburn, 
we're talking just like recent, 2005 Texas, 2013 Florida State, like those are all BCS era teams that won one national title. Okay, Ohio State's won one national title in the college football playoff era and, you know, of late. LSU's won one. Other than that, like, you know, when you start thinking about multiple-time national champions in the last 15 years, it's Alabama and Clemson. That's it. Georgia's trying to put itself into that echelon, and I don't know that it's going to get much easier than it is right now. I don't want to pretend like Ohio State's an easy matchup for Georgia. It's not. And we'll talk about, you know, the matchup specifically in a second. But, like, I I think that when you start to look at the 12-team playoff, okay, that's going to make it more difficult in the future. The transfer portal and just, like, I I think it's going to become more and more rare that we're going to have senior classes, you know, racking up as many wins as this senior class has, there's not really going to, I don't envision, you know, in the future for college football, there's going to be a lot of like classes that stay together where there's a dozen, 15 guys, you know, that sort of work their way through the program. That, that kind of thing's just not going to happen that often anymore. So combine that with the fact that the 12 team playoff is coming, which obviously if there's 12 teams in the playoffs, that makes it harder to win a national title than if there's four. Duh. It makes it easier to get in, but it makes it more difficult to win it. There's only four right now. Georgia's two games away from winning a national title. Okay, so the 12-team playoffs coming, the transfer portal shaking up college football. And then the third thing would be the SEC East is down. And it has been for the last few years. Now, you could say that that's largely because of Kirby Smart and because of Georgia. You know, the fact that they're taking away from teams like Florida, from Tennessee. You know, I don't know that they're out there recruiting head-to-head with South Carolina too often. Probably not Kentucky, but Florida and Tennessee mainly have been down the last few years. That's not going to happen forever. Okay, so Georgia has a golden opportunity, and I don't know that they're going to have an opportunity like this in the near future. Like Maybe they get back there next year. Who knows? But, like, this is the chance. You're right here at the doorstep, and as much as last year was great, last year's national title was great, and we've talked about it. You know, I've said this on this podcast before. It feels different this year now that we've gotten the proverbial monkey off our back. But if... Georgia doesn't win a national title here five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, Georgia fans and certainly the Georgia team will look back and kick themselves and they will always remember how close they were to becoming the first ever college football playoff back-to-back national champs. So yeah, there should be a sense of urgency about this. And again, as it gets closer, I start thinking about that more and more that, yeah, it's nice to have last year, but they might, these opportunities don't come around too often. They don't come around too often. And if Georgia wants to elevate itself past just being a good program, having a nice run here since, say, 2017, If it wants to elevate itself past that, they can do that. They can do that in the next two weeks. And it might not get much easier than this. Might not get much easier than this. Um, As far as Ohio State goes, I think, you know, I think the main thing that Georgia and maybe even Georgia fans are going to have to, I think, come to grips with is that I don't know that Georgia's going to shut down Ohio State's offense, you know, in terms of, like, the way that we're used to Georgia's defense playing this season. 
I think that Georgia fans, for the first time this season, and perhaps for the first time since they played Alabama in the national championship last year, they're going to look across the field and they're going to be envious of some of the players that Ohio State has. There's no way around it that, that roster-wise, Ohio State can match up. They have talent everywhere. I mean, they have stacked recruiting classes year after year up there in Columbus. And, and that doesn't happen to Georgia too often. It doesn't happen to Ohio State too often. Okay, Because when Michigan lines up across from TCU, that won't be the case. Last year when Alabama lined up against Cincinnati, that wasn't the case. This year, Georgia's looking straight across from five stars and four stars everywhere. Up and down the lineup, up and down the depth chart. So it's kind of put up or shut up time. Like Georgia's played one one possession game all season. Missouri. Ohio State hasn't played a one possession game at all. They don't have a one possession game this entire season. Even their loss to Michigan was in blowout fashion. Now maybe the score doesn't quite indicate that that game was close at times, but it got away from Ohio State and it got away from them quickly. One thing I'm interested to see is the first quarter. The, the, both teams are really good in the first quarter in terms of their offenses. Ohio State scores its most points of any quarter in the first quarter. Georgia's is the second quarter. And usually you would look and say, hey, you know, you would hope that your second half scoring is more than your first half scoring because that indicates that you make adjustments at halftime, that you look at what you're seeing, look at the way you're being played, look at the matchups being presented, and you adjust. But like we say with Georgia, there's really haven't been that many games that have been close in the second half. With Ohio State, it's been the same way. So, so that's not really, you can't really look at the stats for that and, and like glean much off of it. Because obviously the second half scoring is going to be down when you're up by 30, 35 points in the second half, as Ohio State and Georgia both have been. But Ohio State, they're scoring 13.5 points in the first quarter on average. Georgia's allowing 1.8 points in the first quarter on average. 1.8. So something's going to have to give there. Ohio State averaging almost two touchdowns in first quarters this season. Georgia's giving up less than two points. Georgia's defense gives up less than four points in every quarter. 1.8 in the first, 3.6 in the second, 3.5 in the third, 3.8 in the fourth. I mean, they just don't show much weakness in in terms of allowing points. But we do know, because we saw it against LSU, we do know that the secondary is prone, especially Keely Ringo. Sometimes Malachi starts, gets a, I mean, you know, gets a little antsy, starts creeping. I mean, he's a really, really talented guy. I think he's going to be one of Georgia's best safeties in recent memory when it's all said and done, but he's a freshman, Starks is. And Keely Ringo, we know, played pretty poorly against LSU. Now, you can do the thing where you're like, well, it's not his fault. The coverage is supposed to glide here. But the fact is that Georgia, for the most part, is playing a lot of man-to-man. We know that. We know that about Kirby Smart. We know that. We know that. We know that. We know that about Georgia. And Keely Ringo was abused against LSU several times. Now he's going to have to line up against Marvin Harrison Jr. And, and Egbuka? Egbuke? Whatever his name is. The other 1,000-yard receiver that Ohio State has because they have two of them. So that's what I'm interested in is, is can Georgia prevent the big play from Ohio State? Because look, Ohio State's not going to get sacked a lot. C.J. Stroud's not going to stand back there a lot. So, I, you know, Jalen Carter's role and the pass rush in general, that role 
may be limited. I, I, I would look for Jalen Carter. Like, I would hope that in Georgia's D-line in general to have some batted balls, especially on those if, if Stroud's going to throw any of those, you know, short routes over the middle. Any of those drag routes, I would hope for some batted balls. But, look, Ohio State doesn't get sacked a lot, and that's because they get the ball out quick and they run quick. Their offense is quick. But for me, it's it's when Georgia has Ohio State third and 13. Like, can they prevent the 25-yard pass play? Because Ohio State's really, really, really good at that. They're almost never out of it in, down, in terms of down and distance. Now, look, they're, they're going to commit some penalties. Ohio State will. They've committed 69 of them on the year, so that's nice. That's almost six penalties a game. Um, and so... That leaves a lot to be desired. They are plus seven in the turnover margin. Ohio State is. Georgia, like strangely, for as dominant as they've been, they're, they're neutral in the turnover margin on the season. They've lost 16 turnovers. They've gotten 16 turnovers. Not a math guy, but that tells me they break even. Defensively, Ohio State, like they're, you know, they are probably what you think of when you, when you think of Ohio State. But they're serviceable. I mean, Ohio State's plus 303 on the year in terms of scoring. They've outscored their opponents by 303 points across 12 games. Georgia's plus 343, folks. Not too bad. It's put up or shut up time for Ringo, for the secondary, for Georgia's defense. Because I think Georgia's offense, I think Stetson Bennett, I think Brock Bowers, I think the combination of, of Milton, Edwards... I think Georgia's going to be able to do enough on offense to put up 30-plus. And we know that when Georgia puts up 30-plus, they're really freaking hard to beat. That may sound obvious, but that wasn't always the case. And that's definitely not always the case when you look around the country. But under Kirby Smart, when Georgia scores 30 or more points, they're 56-1. and Hello. Hello. Pretty good. One thing I hope that we don't see in this bowl game or in this Peach Bowl is is I hope we don't see Kirby Smart, you know, especially if it's like 10-0 Ohio State earlier, if they jump out to a 7-0 lead. I don't want to start going for it every fourth down. I don't want to start chasing Ohio State. You don't, I don't think Georgia wants to get in that kind of a track meet. I like J-Pod. Let him kick it. And actually, if Podlesny's career ended now, and he's a senior, so he's, you know, he's got a maximum of two games left, he'd be the most accurate kicker in Georgia history. He's at 84% right now. Blankenship, 82%. And Brandon Couture, 80% for their careers. So, like, you have a good kicker, you have a really good punter, and you have a world-class defense. I don't want to see any of this like starting to go for it and play man ball and try to prove how tough you are. None of that. And we know like Kirby Smart is not immune in these big games to doing something weird. I hope we don't see any of that. Um What else? What else for the matchup? Um Ohio State defensively, like I, I don't think that that they have too many guys that are going to like really scare Georgia. But Tommy Eichenberg is their leading tackle tackler. I mean, he's a prototypical white linebacker for Ohio state. Like the Eichenberg, Tommy Eichenberg, that's the guy's name. Like he had never had a choice. He was always going to play linebacker at Ohio state. 112 tackles, 12 tackles for loss, just two and a half sacks. They don't really have a lot of sack guys. Two and a half sacks. Steel Chambers, pretty solid name. He's got 69 tackles. He's second on the team. That's nice. He's got one and a half sacks. Lathan Ransom, 65 tackles, one and a half sacks. So I don't envision Stetson Bennett's going to be under a lot of pressure in this football game. But for me, it's just can Georgia keep pace and kind of do what it wants to do offensively. And we know that Todd Munkin's going to probably settle in to this game 
and try to establish a run early. And like that's been frustrating at times because it does feel like at times this Georgia offense is kind of playing with its food instead of just attacking downfield. But I don't think with Ohio State's offense that Georgia's offense is gonna is gonna you know come out and try to gun it downfield because you don't want to risk you know Bennett starting one for four you know two punts in the first quarter and then put your defense out there against C.J. Stroud in that lightning quick Ohio State offense. I'm excited for the game. Hopefully the next time we talk we're previewing Georgia. In the national title game, I hope so. I hope so. New Year's Eve night, 8 p.m., Georgia, Ohio State. It'll be Georgia's fifth college football playoff game ever. They're 3-1 and one in four previous college football playoff games. The only loss coming thanks to Tua in Alabama in that 2018 national title game. Ohio State's playing in their seventh college football playoff game. That's pretty wild. Pretty wild. They're playing in their seventh college football playoff game. They're 3-3 and all-time. 3-3 and all-time. So there it is. That's my preview for Georgia-Ohio State. Big picture, sense of urgency for Georgia. Are you going to be a team that won once, like Auburn, like Texas, like Florida State? Like LSU? Like Ohio State, maybe? Or... Are you going to elevate yourself to Alabama, to Clemson? Are you going to do what has never been done? College football playoff era has never had a back-to-back champ. Georgia can do just that. Let's hope. Let's hope. I'm picking Georgia. I think they're going to win. I think they're going to win. All right, let's kick it forward now into the future. Let's do a little time traveling. To my reaction from the Georgia Southern game live from Coach's Corner right after this word from our sponsor. All right, welcome back in. Doing a little time traveling. Not live at Coach's Corner. Uh, I went out there to watch the Georgia Southern Bowl game. Uh, Did not record live from there. Had some things go on. But we are still reacting to Georgia Southern's 23-21 loss to Buffalo uh, in the Camellia Bowl. Got a lot to take away from this game. Look, Georgia Southern lost, but I think going into this game, most Georgia Southern fans agreed with me, I think, on this point. If you don't agree, let me know, certainly. I think this game, the further removed we get from it, will matter less and less. The season as a whole, still a success. Nobody thought Georgia Southern would be in a bowl game, myself included. Um, And even though they lost, and even though... You know, they left a lot of plays on the field that we'll get to in a second. I still think, overall, generally, the season, resounding success. Like, it's still okay to be pissed about it. Still okay to be pissed about plays that weren't made in Montgomery, um, which was an absolute shit show from what I could tell on Twitter. The the experience at the Camellia Bowl, not exactly ideal, um, according to most Georgia Southern fans that I saw. So we'll get to the good, the bad. We'll get to some of the big moments in the game and then some off-the-field stuff uh, that I wanted to touch on as well. The good thing, some good things. Georgia Southern, the entire game, played hard. They played like it mattered in a game, in a bowl game, that if we're honest, if we're honest here, didn't matter that much. I mean, it just doesn't matter that much. In the grand scheme of things, a December 27th appearance in the Camellia Bowl, that's not what Georgia Southern is like looking for. You know what I mean? Like, the, like if they win this game, twenty-three to twenty-one, it, I don't think that it would have been considered even like a top ten program victory, top fifteen, top twenty all time. I mean, like it, it just didn't matter that much. But the players played hard as shit, and there were moments, you know. During the Lunsford era, certainly during Kevin Whitley's interim season, there were moments where that wasn't the case. And who could blame them? But, but during this bowl game, I thought a lot of Georgia Southern's veteran players played their asses off, um, but j- just didn't make enough plays. So, like, that's good that they played hard. They played like it mattered. 
And they played a brand that's like, I mean, nothing to be ashamed of. The defense actually came out and shut down the Buffalo run game. Buffalo wasn't great running the ball anyways. Okay, we knew that coming into it. Just see their Akron performance for more proof of that. But the whole time that Georgia Southern has been, I mean, brutal defensively. Brutal. All we've asked of them is to, can you figure out how to stop the run or stop the pass? They were never going to be able to figure out both. But for most of the time this season, they weren't able to figure out either. This game, they were. They stopped the run. I mean, they shut down the run to the tune of 2.8 yards per carry for Buffalo. Okay, so like if you can do that, I thought Georgia Southern would have a chance, and they did. They did. They won the second half. They outscored Buffalo after halftime, 15-9. to They didn't allow Buffalo to score a touchdown after halftime. And if you would have told me that about this defense coming into the game, I would have really liked Georgia Southern's chances. For me, it was more about what the, the offense couldn't do down the stretch than, than it was about the defense in this game. Offensively for Georgia Southern, 11 players caught a pass. That's good. It was Bo Johnson's coming out party. Five receptions, 118 yards. And 11 different players caught a pass, including Kyle Van Treese, the quarterback. <laughs> That's wild. But when you have 11 guys catching passes, that shows you that, like, yeah, there are plenty of weapons. Uh, I, like, Caleb Hood's lack of being able to to break loose, I think he had like seven or eight catches, Hood did, but he only had like 29 yards. So he just couldn't break loose on any of those big plays. Um, and then I, I guess one more thing defensively, and then, and then I thought O.J. Arnold was good. Like I thought he showed glimpses of being the explosive back that Georgia Southern hopes he can be alongside a guy like Jalen White moving forward who didn't play in the game as we expected. Um, neither did Singleton, who I, was pretty much the only like game time question. I think we all knew Jalen White was going to be out for the game. He was out for the year. Um, Singleton was a question coming in. He didn't play. But in, a, in his stead, I mean, 11 different Georgia Southern players caught a pass, so that wasn't the problem. I think the problem was lack of sustained Drives and like that leads us into the bad. But one more thing on the good: the de- the defense, like we said, they held up over thirty eight minutes of Buffalo possession time. Eighty one plays for Buffalo, sixty seven for Georgia Southern. They still outgained them. The Eagles did four forty four to three eight seven, but they only possessed the ball for twenty one minutes fifty four seconds. So they were out possessed by seventeen minutes. Over that stretch, the defense held up for Georgia Southern. Six tackles for loss, 10 pass breakups in the game for Georgia Southern. But that's one of the bad things is that they didn't make plays. They had three drops offensively. But man, how many times in this game did we see Georgia Southern defenders have the ball right in their hands for an easy interception? And they just dropped them. So many drops. What about on third downs? Buffalo was dynamite on third downs. I mean, it, was, it, it got to the point at one point where they converted seven consecutive third down conversions. Buffalo did. They finished 12 of 19. So you want to know how you get to 38 minutes of possession time. You have 19 third downs and you convert on 12 of them. Okay, That means you're not getting a lot of first downs on first down and second down. But Georgia Southern just couldn't get off the field on third down, so that's bad. They were 7-15, of 15, the Eagles were, on third down, which is not great, but it's not, I mean, it's not terrible. Not a math guy, but it's almost 50%, which is serviceable. Again, not good, but serviceable. The penalties for Georgia Southern, seven penalties. Buffalo committed, committed three. That's how you lose a two-point game. That's how you lose a two-point game is you commit seven penalties, you give up 12 third-down conversions, tons of drops, not taking advantage of big play opportunities. 
Pass breakups are great. Interceptions are better. Write that down. Georgia Southern allowed two 100-yard receivers. Marshall was electric, 11, 127, and 1 for Buffalo, and then Williams, 5 for a hundo in the receiving game. For Buffalo, like, 11 for 127 for for Marshall, um, for Buffalo, that's, you can give that up if you're Georgia Southern. And you would expect those receivers to have a big game against Georgia Southern. What sucks is that this is another time in a bowl game where a Georgia native takes advantage of Georgia Southern. I forget his name, but Liberty had a wide receiver that was also from Georgia who, um, I forget where he was drafted, but he was drafted pretty highly, um, maybe by the commanders. Um, and, And he was from Georgia. He tore apart Georgia Southern in the Cure Bowl. Marshall does the same thing. These are the kind of, and I heard Terry Harvin talk about this on the radio broadcast during the Camellia Bowl. This is the kind of player that Georgia Southern can't allow, cannot allow to get out of the state of Georgia moving forward. If you have fringe three star, four star receivers that are going places like Louisville, places like Minnesota, places like Liberty, places like Buffalo, Georgia Southern has to start getting those guys. They don't have to get. The guys that are going to Georgia, the guys that are going to Ohio State, Alabama. But you got to keep some of these three-star receivers in state. Moving forward, I think they'll have an opportunity um, to do that. All right, what about big moments in, in the game? We know that Bo Johnson had a big game, 5 for 118, like we said. But, man, he got sniped. He got sniped there in the second quarter where Georgia Southern was outscored 14-6. to six. Bo Johnson had a wide-open touchdown. Um, Got sniped from the upper deck. Sniper took him out. Turf Monster took him out. Um, And Georgia Southern ended up having to settle for a field goal, one of their two field goals in the second quarter. Uh, Like, that sucked. But twice Georgia Southern in the red zone uh, in the second quarter and both times came away with field goals. I thought the first trip to the red zone was strange. Just some of the play calling, like we know the field shrinks in the red zone, but you don't have to shrink yourself. Going under center was cute, I guess, but it didn't work. It didn't work. I mean, you tried to run out of the I formation on third and goal from the like four. Just didn't work, man. So, you know, the play calling, especially in the red zone, left a lot to be desired. Not a lot of creativity for having so much time off. You know, I would have liked to see a little more creativity than, you know, eye formation under center handoff. So, you know, that not great. The red zone in general, not great. For Georgia Southern, um, let's see. What about the end of the first half? The end of the first half for Georgia Southern, the clock management was, was terrible. I mean, just terrible. Sort of a dumbfounding, inexcusable I think there was like 30-something seconds left on the clock. Georgia Southern has it around. It's, it's somewhere around its own 35, own 40. And they, and they never advance past the 50. If you're Van Treese when there's 13 seconds left, you can't dump it down. Just throw it into the stands or something. Like, Give yourself a chance here to make a play. The, the dump down with no timeouts does nothing. When you start the drive with one timeout, you want to get the drive going with something positive. Start moving forward, and then you just use your timeout as quick as possible. That's what they did, but then you can't dump it down after that. So we want to blame Brian Ellis, or we want to blame Clay Helton for poor clock management, which is what it was down the stretch in the first half. But some of it has to fall on Van Trees there. I mean, just because you call a play doesn't mean the player has to you know, run it like a robot. So that was tough, and, and, and I thought if you're a team like Georgia Southern with the kind of offense you have, you can't let halves in like that. That's something they definitely have to improve on, situational stuff, moving into next year. I think they will. Um, so coming out in the second half, the biggest, I, I think, you know, set of series in the game was the end of the first half, Uh, or not the end of the first half, the beginning of the second half, when I thought Georgia Southern really got back in the game, um, they try like a pooch onside, goes out of bounds. 
So Buffalo has great field position. But then a forced fumble on a great play uh, by CDW. And, and then Anthony Wilson recovers the fumble on the first play from Buffalo on Buffalo's drive coming out in the second half. On the very next play, Kyle Van Treese hits Josh Thompson on a 79-yard touchdown. And you think Georgia Southern's off to the races. But that didn't happen. Buffalo answered with a field goal of its own. And then things got away from Georgia Southern. A third-quarter fumble led to Buffalo's, led to three points for Buffalo. And then an interception led to three points from Buffalo. So that's how Buffalo got its six third-quarter points off of two Georgia Southern turnovers. And that's the difference in the ballgame. There it is, right there. So those, to me, were the biggest moments from the Georgia Southern game. What about off-the-field stuff? Uh, Montgomery got terrible reviews. Just got awful, awful reviews. Took forever for Georgia Southern fans to get in line or to get into the game. Um, the night before, like around Montgomery, it sounded like it looked like that the bars and stuff weren't ready for Georgia Southern. I'm willing to give that a pass because that's the city of Montgomery. That's businesses. Okay, those are like just regular people working bartending shifts and, and serving shifts. Like, if they're not ready for that, like, they should have been. But at least that's, you know, that's subject to some leeway because th th those are private businesses. So let's say they don't have enough bartenders. Okay, so be it. What you can't have is you can't have massive lines outside of the Camellia Bowl after the game starts and half the seats are empty. More people outside than inside when the game started. Brutal. They ran out of beer at halftime? What, what else are you supposed to do on a Tuesday afternoon in Montgomery besides drink beer? Now that's a cardinal sin. You cannot have that. Then the broadcast, Aaron Murray was on the broadcast. This was a paradox for me because I loved Aaron Murray at Georgia. He's still one of my favorite players to ever play there. But he, like, he's not great in the booth. He kept calling Najee Thompson, Najee Thomas. Just kept calling him that over and over again. Um, yeah, he wasn't great in the booth. Tough watch. But you know what was good? What we've always talked about in the Crampton Bowl. The greatest hype song there ever was. Because the flag still stands for freedom. And they can't take that away. An American, where at least I know I'm free, and I won't forget the men who died who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. Yeah, what a jam, dude. Does that not get the blood going, little Lee Greenwood, for you? Uh, we had boots on the ground in Montgomery from a loyal listener, Taylor Henson. He told me they played. He tweeted at me and said they played God bless the USA with like three minutes left in the fourth quarter. The stadium known for playing God bless the USA in the most critical times of football games. The weirdest and greatest hype anthem ever. Um, all right, that's it for my Camellia Bowl recap. We'll have uh, Mike Anthony on sometime in January. Maybe, maybe, I mean, certainly ahead of Georgia Southern spring game. But we'll kind of recap the season and see where Georgia Southern goes from here. Lots of turnover coming up for Georgia Southern. Um, and I think now, now you really begin to see Clay Helton's fingerprints on the program. For good or bad, that's coming down the track. Uh, quickly, some other bowl games to run down before we jump back um, into the episode here. I, like, I think that the most... I mean, obviously, the Georgia-Ohio State game, Michigan-TCU, the, the two semifinal games. But upcoming for me, Alabama-Kansas State. Super interested to see that one. I like Alabama um, in that game. I had Kansas State early, but I I've swayed back to Bama, mostly because Bryce Young and Will Anderson are going to play. That's six and a half points uh, Bama's giving up in that one. The Orange Bowl, Clemson-Tennessee, which it had to be Orange Bowl. 
I mean, I was calling this one the Orange Bowl no matter what. Clemson minus five and a half against Tennessee. I definitely like Clemson in that game. Uh, like Tennessee without Hinden Hooker is a different team altogether. So give me Clemson in that one. Alabama over Kansas State. Um, I do like Southern Cal over Tulane. That's, that one's getting a lot of traction. A lot of people liking the green wave in that one. That's USC minus two. I'll take USC in that one. Notre Dame, South Carolina is one that I'm really interested to see. I have no idea who's going to win that football game. Notre Dame's favored by two points as I record this here. I'll take the Irish. I'll take the Irish in that one. And then Monday, Mississippi State versus Illinois is a pick game. I like Illinois in this game. But you're not allowed to say that. You're not allowed to pick that because Mike Leach died. In HGP, CDOTW went there, Mike Leach. So instead of picking Mississippi State, Illinois, which I have Illinois, don't tell anybody, I'm going to pick the over on 46 points because what is more Mike Leach than the over? Nothing. That's what. So give me the over on 46, Mississippi State, Illinois. Um, Bowl games presented by John Carr, the number one realtor in the world, the sponsor of our Hot Grits podcast, Bowl Pick'em Group. If you're in that group, you can always adjust your confidence points and adjust your picks before every game this bowl season. So if you're out of it, you can start taking chances, picking upsets, and try to work your way back into it. Call or text John Carr today. If you have any real estate needs in the Savannah area, it's 912-228-0916, 912-228-0916. Our guy, John Carr, the number one realtor in the world and a top five nice guy in the entire world. Call him or text him today. Tell him the Hot Grits Podcast sent you and he will hook it up. 912-228-0916. All right, let's jump back into it now. A little time traveling. All right, welcome back in, back from time traveling. Now we're going to travel back to a pre-recorded session. Let's talk some Falcons. I know you guys aren't excited about this. Neither am I. They've lost four in a row now, five and ten overall, one and seven, one and seven on the road. They've lost four straight games, all by one possession. They've lost them by 20 points total. Not a math guy, but... 20 points total, four straight losses. That's an average of five points per loss. You know what bad teams do? Do you know what bad football teams do, folks? Now, really turn, turn me up now. Turn me up here so you can hear this. Bad football teams lose one possession games, and they lose road games. And this Falcons team is a bad football team, folks. Another one possession loss, but somehow, somehow the Birds are still kind of in an NFC South conversation. Now, it would be a weird conversation to have, but the fact is that you could have it if you wanted to. They're 5-10, and 10, Tampa Bay 7-8, and eight, but the Birds close with Arizona this week and then at home against Tampa Bay in the finale. So if the Falcons win out, they could finish at 7-10. and 10. That would presumably, they would need the Bucks to lose next week. And then if Atlanta beats Tampa in the finale, they'd finish, they'd both finish at 7 and 10. The Falcons would have the tiebreaker. But then you have the Panthers at 6 and 9. Nice. Uh, and then the Saints. The Saints are there too. Uh, really, Carolina at 6 and 9, they're one DJ Moore uh, stripping his helmet off after that ridiculous, you know, at the end of that game where he strips his helmet off, the Falcons get the penalty on the kickoff and then, and then they go and win the game. The, the Panthers, without that happening, are squarely in the playoff hunt. I mean, because you give them that game, they'd be 7-8. Seven, seven and eight. The Falcons would be 4-11. and 11. They'd be out of it. If that didn't happen, who knows where we'd be. Steve Wilkes, man, since, uh, since Matt Rule got fired in Carolina, he's been... The Panthers have been just quietly chugging along. They're not world beaters. They're 6-9. and nine. But, I mean, they, too, have a chance to win the NFC South. 
We could spend time talking about Tom Brady, man. I'm worried about Tom. Don't say it too loud. Don't say it too loudly, but I think I think Tom Brady might need to retire. I think he's lost it. Don't tell him I said that. But I think he's lost it. I think Tom Brady's lost it. The Falcons are, like I say, 5-10. and 10. Right now, if the NFL draft was today, they'd draft 6th. But they're one win away, they're one game away from drafting 11th. And they're one game away from drafting 3rd. If you're a Falcons fan, do you want them to win? I mean, do you even want that to happen? Imagine going through all this as a Falcons fan and they draft and then they draft 11th. I mean, that would suck. They play things right. You finish 5 and 12? Man, you can be drafted in the top 5. But if they win these next two, man, they could be drafted 12th, 13th. They could make the playoffs and, and not even be in the top 15. And now, they're favored this weekend. The Falcons are at home against uh, the mighty Cardinals, Trace McSorley's Cardinals. So, I, you know, I think that might be the only matchup outside of possibly the Broncos that the Falcons would be favored in across the NFL. But they're favored this weekend, folks. It's not out of the realm of possibility. So you're telling me there's a chance. All right, let's get to some local talk now presented by Prep Sports Report. PrepSportsReport.com, the number one source for local sports in Savannah. Free to read, no sign-up required. Just click on any story you want on the website uh, and read away. You can find out all about local sports, high school, basketball, in the middle of their season. Right now, we have plenty of stuff up there on PrepSportsReport.com. You can also check them out on Twitter, at PrepSAV. Uh, before we get local, quickly, Braves signed Jackson Stevens. They re-signed him uh, as a right-handed bullpen arm. A bolt guy, probably a swing a swing man. You could, you know, I could envision Jackson Stevens bouncing from AAA to Major League to the Phantom IL kind of all year. But, you know, while the Mets are signing Carlos Correa to play third base, the Braves are re-signing Jackson Stevens. Ho-hum. Uh, let's get to local local sports uh, we have a lot of Savannah teams in Kyle Sandy's top 10 this week for boys' hoops. Savannah High, number 8 in Class A. Woodville Tompkins, 8-6 and six overall at number 10 this week for Kyle Sandy. I, I don't know how good Woodville is. We've talked about that before, but they're back in the top 10 this week. Uh, class 2A, number 7, Windsor Forest. And then Class 3A, Johnson, number 2. They remain at number 2. Uh, number four Beach and number six Calvary Day and three A all in Region three, three A right there. We talked about that last week. No changes there. Two, four, and six for Johnson Beach and Calvary Day. Um, Johnson will be playing this weekend over uh, on the island at St Andrews inaugural St Andrews Holiday Showcase. Um, it, it's disappointing because a, a cool matchup would definitely be St Andrews versus Johnson, the defending. GIAA state champion um, St. Andrews team led by Zaire Edwards, who is super nice with the Rock. If you haven't seen Zaire Edwards play at St. Andrews, you have about half a season left to do so because he is fun to watch. He's averaging over 23 a game. So is Johnson's Antonio Baker. To see those, those two guys go head-to-head, you know, Johnson, a lot of people, including myself, think they have plenty of talent like they have enough talent certainly to win a state title you know avoid injuries knock on wood avoid some bad luck maybe a bad draw in the bracket and things shake right you could have Johnson winning a state championship and I would think St. Andrews you know not a GIA hoops head I'm not but I would think that they would be the heavy favorite to repeat as the GIA state champs with all the talent that Mel Abrams and those guys have down there, we're not going to get to see that matchup, unfortunately. But we will get to see St. Andrews take on the likes of Ponte Vedra, Kings Ridge, I think. Uh, Kings Ridge is number two in Class A D2 this week, according to Kyle Sandy. Uh, you'll get Ponte Vedra, who's number five in Florida's Class 6A, according to Max Preps. 
Um, and then you'll get Loganville, who's a pretty nice school. They'll play, I think they play Groves. Groves is in that tournament too. Um, so we'll get to see some good matchups in that tournament. I think Ponavidra Johnson would be the highlight of that. Let me look and see what time that is. I have the schedule right here. Let's see. Ponavidra versus Johnson, Thursday night at 6 p.m. And then St. Andrews versus Ponavidra, Friday night, 6 p.m. Um, those are the two highlights, I think. Uh, Kings Ridge, Groves. You know, Groves beat Beach. They can play. See if Groves can beat number two, Kings Ridge. They play Friday at 4 p.m. And again, all that down there at St. Andrews. So check that out. Check it out on prepsportsreport.com. We have a preview of that and a bunch of other holiday post-Christmas tournaments. Um, elsewhere in the high school sports world, A.J. Butts, the rising senior at Calvary, rising senior running back linebacker, he announced that he's transferring to Evingham County for his senior year. Um, so Calvary has a lot of talent. I don't know that it's going to be the last transfer that Calvary has off that team from this year. It certainly won't be the last transfer that we see in the city, just part of it, whether you like it or not. You know, whether you think there's uh, external reasons for these transfers or not, the fact is that they're happening and they're going to continue to happen. So you can bitch and moan about it or, or you can accept it as fact and adapt from there. And we'll do the latter on here. One name that like I, I'm going to continue to watch because he's so freaking good is Thomas Blackshear who you know, has left BC. We know the story behind it. If you don't know the story behind it, uh, find out. It's not too difficult. But he is a talent, folks. He's really, really good. And right now he's you know, a de facto free agent after leaving BC. So where he lands, and if he lands in this area, I would think it would be outside of the city. But, I mean, you could see it something like Evingham, potentially. Who knows? But where he lands is going to be a big deal. He's a junior, so still two years left for Blackshear, and he led the Benedictine Cadets in receiving this season and missed three games. So that tells you how good he is. Um, all right, we'll close up now with our HGP Celebrity Death of the Week, and we're going to take out the word celebrity this week. We're going to take out the word celebrity this week and just do an HGP death of the week and the death of the week, courtesy of the GHSA, the good old Georgia high school association, the good old Georgia high school association. They did it again this week, folks. They tweeted, or I should say last week, they tweeted essentially blaming the lack of officials. There's an officials, uh, referees shortage across high school sports across the country. Like, when I say that out loud, I don't know that you're going to be that shocked to find out that people don't want to be refs. I mean, it's a pretty thankless job. But this is what the official GHSA tweeted, and this makes all high school referees our, our celebrity death of the week here on Hot Chris Podcast. All refs are dead, basically, and it's our fault, according to the GHSA, who tweeted, quote, What's more important to you, yelling at officials or having high school sports. Bad behavior by adult fans has caused a national shortage of officials. No officials equals no high school sports. End quote. So the GHSA is telling you, quote, bad behavior by adult fans has caused a national shortage of officials. End quote. That's them telling you that it's your fault, folks. The reason we don't have refs, the reason... We have a shortage of officials. It's because of you. It's because of adults yelling at refs. Shame on the GHSA for blaming that on us. You have a shortage of officials? Fix it! Don't tweet out blaming it on, blaming it on the fans. I mean, think about what kind of a look that is. Think about the gusto it takes to put that out there, to blame it on fans. It's not us. It's not us. It's you guys. Quit yelling at refs like this is some novel idea. As if just now, 
in the last couple of years, people started yelling at referees. When God created Adam and Eve, the next thing he did was yell at the referee. I mean, it's a rite of passage. It's been around forever. It's not new. It's not a new development. Okay, so if, if the refs are falling off, if the participation numbers in officials are falling off, you fix it. Pay them more. Incentivize them more. Do something to fix it. Don't tweet out. Don't spend time blaming it on people for yelling at refs, something that's been happening forever. It's not our fault. It's your fault, GHSA. You killed the refs. And for that, you get our HGP Celebrity Death of the Week. All right, that's it for episode 144. Until episode 145, stay safe. Wash your hands, you filthy animals. Savannah's premier indoor baseball training facility, SBPA, is owned and operated by Ross Howard, and together with instructors who have played college and professional baseball, Ross and SBPA offer customized instruction year-round for baseball and softball players, full-length batting cages, pitching mounds, and a state-of-the-art technology to measure improvement are just a few of the highlights over at the academy. Call Ross at 912-484-5282 and visit the Savannah Baseball Performance Academy on Facebook for programs, teams, camps, and more information about how to take advantage of this great venue. Savannah's only year-round indoor baseball facility, Ross Howard, our guy. Give him a call, 912-484-5282. Commercial and residential electrical services that you can trust. Braddy Electric is Savannah's number one electrical services for commercial and residentials since 1970. It's family owned and family operated. Reach them today at 912-233-1561 or 1104 East 35th Street. 
Braddy Electric, that's two D's, B-R-A-D-D-Y. Five stars on Yelp, five stars on Google reviews, and Savannah's number one electrical servicer since 1970. Call them today, 912-233-1561. 